And turn with me to the 10th chapter of the book of Revelation. In my own mind, the, uh, the Christian faith is really very simple, at least it's very simple to state. As I understand the revelation which uh, God has given us in both the Old and New Testaments, God created us to be dependent beings. We, um, we only fulfill ourselves when we are dependent upon, upon God. As uh, Augustine put it, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. We uh, may try to find rest in a number of, of pursuits, human activities, worthwhile things, but uh, we can never really assuage the, the restlessness and uh, the hurt and uh, meaninglessness of our life until we learn to depend upon the one who created us. The problem is that uh, being dependent creatures, we transfer our dependence from God to something else. And uh, since the only other beings in the world uh, to be uh, worshipped, there, there is one, only one other class of beings in the world to worship, and we transfer our dependence to man. And we begin to count on ourselves and believe in, in man and what man does. When uh, we think of that in terms of a philosophy of life, it's humanism. But uh, Paul refers to it in the New Testament as the mind of the flesh. That is a, a dependence upon ourselves and what we are and what man makes with his hands and what man can do. And it's that self-dependency or a dependency upon man that creates all of the mischief and evil and hardship in the world. And as we've seen in our studies in Revelation, what God does is simply, simply let us have our way. If we want to worship man, he lets us. If we want to depend upon ourselves and our own wisdom and strength to make our way through life, he'll, he'll permit that. And uh, that, as we have seen, is the judgment of God upon us. That's his hand in judgment. He seldom acts in immediate judgment. He simply... Uh, takes his hands off of us and lets us go, and we reap what we sow. We reap the whirlwind. And we come to ourselves and realize that uh, we've been living life on the wrong basis. We discover that uh, we are our own worst enemies when uh, left to our own devices. Some of you may have seen the story in Reader's Digest this past week of the man who was in a foxhole in Southeast Asia. And uh, one of the things most feared uh, in that terrible war was a night attack. And this uh, young man woke up in the middle of the night with a hand on his throat. And he was terrified. He grabbed the arm and he threw it off of his neck and wrestled with it and struggled around in the close uh, confines of this uh, foxhole. And the, the hand struck him in the face and he threw it off and it landed on his thigh. And, and then he realized that it was getting weaker. And, and uh, so he stopped struggling for a moment while his heart uh, pounded fiercely and and then he realized that what had happened is that his right arm had gone to sleep and he was wrestling with his right hand. And uh, that's the sort of thing I think that God uh, permits us to do. We, we, uh, we become our own enemy. We war against ourselves. And God permits that in a redemptive uh, sort of way so we will come to the end of ourselves and see how much we need a Lord. Now, that's what we've been seeing in Revelation. Uh, we've been discovering principles of life, and that's one of them. We tend to think of Revelation as primarily concerned with some far-off uh, eschatological period of time, 
and we can satisfy our curiosity by putting everything in on a time chart or on a timeline, and, and we can figure out the, the future of, of human history, and that exhausts the meaning of Revelation. But it doesn't. There are principles of life revealed in that book that, that obtain now. They can be lived on now. And it's these that we've been most uh, concerned with. Now, as we saw last week, John envisions in this uh, symbolic way, this great drama that's being acted out visually before him, the end of, of, of man's reign. God's day of rule is, is coming. But uh, man is having his way now. And he sees in particular this final seven years of human history when God takes his hands off of, off of us and lets us do what, what we please and wreak havoc uh, on a worldwide basis. He sees um, two men, two great personages that appear. One from the West, this leader of the Western Confederacy, of Western civilization, who causes the whole world to worship him. He's the embodiment of, of humanism. And uh, this, uh, this man uh, calls for the whole world to give their devotion to him as God. And he's aligned with some leader from the East, some religious uh, leader, a false prophet, who teaches the world to follow the, the first beast, the Western leader. And uh, he causes the whole world to go after him. His teaching, essentially, again, is humanistic. Worship man as man is epitomized in this, in this one leader. And the, the whole world is led into chaos and anarchy. And out of this terrible, bloody scene, the believers of that period begin to pray. And uh, God, in answer to that prayer, releases the angels at the Euphrates, the traditional barrier between east and west, and the dreaded yellow peril floods across the Tigris-Euphrates Valley and into, uh, into Palestine. And this invasion from the east draws the whole world into warfare. This is what we would describe today as World War III, a nuclear holocaust that results in one-third of the human race being exterminated. Terrible, terrible nuclear uh, conflict in which the whole world is engaged. Now, at that point, the great director shouts, Cut! And uh, we go back for what we might call a flashback. This is the style of the book of Revelation, as we've seen these series of seven. The, um, uh, there's a counting down to the, to the end when the Lord will come back. And between the sixth and seventh in the series, there is a sort of parenthesis. When uh, judgment is held in, in abeyance, everything stops. Uh, the, the Lord's coming is, uh, is restrained, is held back for a period. And in this parenthetical the stylistic parenthetical period, something is revealed that will help us to wait. Delay is always a part of God's uh, plan. That's the way he operates. Delay is part of the process. And in each case, as the countdown continues, you come to the sixth in the series, and all the action stops. And John is taken back over some period of time and given information that will equip him for this period of, of delay. Now, that's not what we have in chapters 10 and 11. We have a parenthetical section between the 6th and 7th trumpets. Now let's begin reading with verse 1 of chapter 10. John says, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven. You will note there's a new reference point for John. Prior to chapter 10, he himself has been in heaven observing these, uh, 
these scenes. Now he is on the earth, and he sees another strong angel, the first strong angel we uh, encountered in chapter 5. Now another appears, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open, and he placed his right hand on the sea, or his right foot on the sea, and his left on the land. And he cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. And when the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Now, we're not told who this angel is. He's simply a strong angel, a mighty angel, and uh, of gigantic proportion. He plants one foot on the land and one foot on the sea. And as we've seen in the book of Revelation, the sea is normally a symbol for the Gentile nations, that great teeming mass of humanity. And uh, the land is a picture of the land of Palestine or the Jewish nation. Apparently, his stance represents his rule over all the world and the universality of this message. This is a message for the nations. It applies to Jew and Gentile. And he has in his hand a little book. Now, John is not describing one of these small books that we carry around in our pocket that have uh, Bible verses uh, on it. Uh, rather, the angel had in his hand a sheet of papyrus, a short roll, an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And uh, it was open. That is, the contents were intended to be read and, and understood. And he cries out with a loud voice as when a lion roars his his cry resonates like a, a lion's roar. And apparently this is a cry of triumph. Uh, literal hell is breaking loose on the earth. But through it all, there is this great cry of, of triumph from the angel. And with the cry, there is an echoing seven peals of thunder. Thunder rolls out from the throne of God in response to the cry of triumph of this angel. And uh, John has his stylus out, and he starts to write down the revelation of the thunders. This is apparently another of those series of seven things which reveal something of the judgments of God, as we've seen in the seals and the trumpets and later on the bowls. So this is a fresh and new revelation of God's activity in human affairs. And John starts to jot this down, and the angel says, No, wait, seal it up, don't, don't reveal these facts. Now, would you like to know what the seven thunders reveal? Uh, I have pondered this at great length, and I have come to the conclusion that no one on earth today knows what the seven thunders reveal. Only John knew, and he's dead, and he didn't leave a diary. And all we have of his writings are uh, the Gospel of John and his three little epistles and the book of Revelation. And unfortunately, he doesn't tell us what was included in this uh, new and fresh revelation of the judgment of God. We simply don't know. This, in my mind, represents one of the great mysteries of God. God has simply chosen to not reveal everything to us. As Paul puts it, we know in part. And we must be content with that partial knowledge. And we don't like that. We like to know everything. I do. And uh, when I don't know, I, it, it rings... Uh, out of me, uh, sometimes a cry of real despair. Why? 
Why isn't God running the world right? Why does he permit cruel tyrants to run roughshod over uh, the people of their nations? Why did he permit this past year a million people to starve in East Africa? Uh, doesn't God know what he's doing? Isn't he in control of things? I just uh, a few months ago uh, heard a mother who had lost her child say to me, Why would God permit this? Take my innocent child, who never did anything wrong in his entire life. Why? And that's the sort of thing that we cry out uh, so frequently. We just don't understand the mysteries of God's process of bringing salvation to earth and working it out through us. So many questions unanswered. But John sees the angel standing on the sea and the land, lift up his hand to heaven. That is, he takes a solemn oath. If you've ever been in court, you know that the judge will ask you to raise your hand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what this angel is doing. It's a solemn vow. It's an oath. And he swears by God. Verse 6, he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and the earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it that there should be, no, uh, be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his saints, the prophet, prophets. And if you turn over a, a page to chapter 11, verse 15, the seventh angel sounds, and there arose loud questions in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. So the seventh trumpet is the coming again of Jesus Christ. And the angel tells John, that's when the mystery of God is finished. That's when you'll understand. You, you won't understand now. You can't understand God's mysterious processes. Salvation is a mystery. Jesus said the wind blows where it will and you hear the sound of it. And, but you don't know where it came from or where it's going. God's ways of working with us are unknown to us. We don't understand. As William Cooper put it, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and moves upon the storm. And because he works in such unknown ways, it uh, confuses us and it bothers us. And we think the world is out of control. And God doesn't know what he's doing. But, but John tells us, as he sees this uh, scene unfold before his eyes, that when the Lord comes back, he'll explain it all. Every mystery will understand it better by and by. We don't understand now why God permits our health to fail and our, our families to struggle, why someone could be led into a marriage that turns out to be so, uh, so unprofitable and, and unhealthy when they start with the best of intentions. Or why our children disappoint us. Or why the world uh, treats us the way it does. We don't understand. But by and by, John says, you'll understand. And that's a, that's a promise. That's a vow that God himself has taken. He'll reveal every mystery. I can remember when Brian was a small child. He uh, became very ill. We almost lost him. And we rushed him to the emergency ward 
of a local hospital. And as it happened, there was only one resident in the, uh, in the emergency room, and, and I had to help this uh, doctor try to find a vein that had collapsed. Brian was dehydrated, and they were having difficulty finding a vein in, uh, into which they could introduce a, a drip, IV drip. And uh, Brian was struggling. He was about four years old, and he didn't understand what was going on. All he knew that it was that this man was inflicting pain on him, and his father was helping. He was holding him down. And I was in such a position, I was leaning over the table. Just We were face to face, and Brian was screaming at the top of his lungs and crying out for help. And he couldn't understand why I would permit this doctor to inflict such pain upon him. And uh, as a father, it just it broke my heart, but I couldn't tell him. He wouldn't understand. And that's, that's something of what we experience. God is at work in us to produce salvation. And his processes are, are mysterious and strange to us. But we can trust him. He knows what he's doing. And in time, when the time comes, when the right time comes, and he comes back, then he'll explain every mystery to us. Now, John, in verse 8, hears a voice from heaven saying, Go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, or it was said to me, You must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. John had observed this uh, open scroll, the sheet of papyrus, in the hand of the angel, and he's told to go and take it and eat it as Ezekiel was in his uh, prophecy. And like uh, Ezekiel, he ate it, and it was sweet in his mouth. And uh, as Jeremiah also uh, describes his, uh, his uh, eating of the scroll, thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. So the, the first taste was, was sweet. But uh, the aftertaste was bitter, we would say today it uh, gave him heartburn. And relief was not just a swallow away. He was having a hard time. Now, in the context of the book of Revelation, the little book that he's describing here is given to us in chapter 11, I believe, verses 1 through 13. And we'll not take time to look at that today. We'll hold that over until next week. There, John sees something of the bittersweet experience of the believers who will live during this uh, final three and a half years before the Lord comes back. There will be a sweetness about their life and, a, and the sustaining power of God, but there will also be bitterness and suffering. And so, specifically, the little book refers to this, this event. But in a general way, it's descriptive of the experience that all of us enter into when we become a Christian. We learn over a period of time that knowing God is a bittersweet experience, and when we imbibe the truth, when we assimilate it and we take it in, we increasingly discover that uh, though it's sweet in the beginning, there is also a, a bitterness about it. When we first meet the Lord, He is incredibly sweet to us. That's a, it's great truth. 
to know that we've been forgiven all of our sins, past, present, future. We cannot undo the grace of God. That's good news. And my, is that, is that sweet. And then we're told that we have resources to live upon. We have the very life of Christ himself resident within us so that we can do all things through Christ that uh, strengthens, uh, who strengthens us. And that's, uh, that's sweet. And then we discover because of his death and burial and resurrection that our destiny is fixed. Our fate is sealed. We have an eternal destiny with, with him and nothing will take that from us. And again, that's, uh, that's sweet to our taste. But then as we enter into truth, we begin to discover that there is another aspect of, of God's revelation to us. And it has to do with the bitterness of life. We discover that there is a bitterness in our circumstances. Just because we've become a Christian, that doesn't mean that, that we're healthy and wealthy and everything goes our way. And uh, life falls into, into place neatly. It doesn't. Circumstances inveigh against us. It seems sometimes that the whole world is out to get us. I uh, just heard this past week that uh, John Hinckley's family is a Christian family. John Hinckley, you know, was the young man who attempted to assassinate uh, our president. And uh, we may think when we hear of, of actions like this, what sort of family would produce a a man like this who would do a monstrous deed like, like that. But uh, Jack Hinckley, his father, is a, is a Christian businessman whose witness is known all over the city of Denver. He became a Christian some seven or eight years ago. Uh, a godly, a devout man, and uh, his wife as well. And uh, they had raised John in an environment of love and security. And it provided everything they could for him, even before they were Christians. They were a devoted and loving and very close uh, family. And then when he met the Lord, they began to teach John the truth of, of the Word of God. And uh, for, for reasons that no one can understand, he apparently became involved in, in the drug scene and his mind was destroyed. And he did the monstrous thing that we all uh, read about in the papers. He tried to kill our president. And I'm sure the question that the Hinckleys would would raise, I certainly would raise it as, why? Why? What, what did I do wrong? How could this happen to me? But, you see, that's life. That's one of the great mysteries of God that will not be unraveled until the Lord comes back, and then He will explain how that fits into this glorious plan of salvation that, that He's working out in our lives, your lives, mine, the life of the world. Or it may be the bitterness of of self-judgment. Uh, you know, when we first become a Christian, we revel in it, in our relationship with the Lord. But uh, then we discover that, that uh, being a Christian means that the Lord not only came to do away, uh, to put, put away the consequences of our sin, but He came to deal with sin itself. And we, we can no longer indulge ourselves in some of the passions that we had before. And we can't uh, go around feeling sorry for ourselves and uh, uh, give way to our moods. We have to deal with our self-centeredness and our grouchiness and our complaining spirit and our unforgiving hearts and our lack of love for people around us. And though we know we have all the resources of God to change, it, it's hard and sometimes it's bitter. But that's part of the bitter, sweet... Uh, 
uh, relationship that we've entered into. Or it may be that that bitterness comes from the judgment of God upon our lives. When we don't judge ourselves, as Paul puts it, then God has to. He always does so redemptively. All of his judgments are designed to set us straight, get us going again, and moving toward maturity. But, but that doesn't uh, uh, mitigate uh, the, the hurt. It still hurts. And God has to reach down into our heart and take hold of something that's entwined uh, around our soul and tear it out, and it hurts. As Corey Ten Boom says, that we, we have a tendency, to, because of our acquisitive nature, to grasp things tightly. And that's idolatry. And God knows that will kill us. And so he, he has to take away from us the things that we worship. And he may have to pry our fingers loose because we grasp them so tightly. And it hurts. But it's all part of God's plan to bring salvation to us. The best illustration of this uh, truth in the old, is in the Old Testament, I think, in the story of David and Nathan. Nathan uh, approached David one day and he told him a story. He said uh, there was a man who had a, a little lamb, and it was his pet. And uh, he loved that, that little beast, and he was very dear to him. And there was another man who lived next door who had vast flocks, very wealthy men. And he wanted to uh, throw a feast to impress his friends. And instead of taking a lamb from his herd, he went next door and took this, little, this man's little pet lamb and sacrificed it and uh, offered it uh, for a meal. And David was just incensed. He felt the sweetness of judgment directed against others. And he wanted something done about it. And Nathan pointed his long bony finger at David, put it right under his nose and said, David, you're the man. You're the man. You stole a man's bride, the dearest thing to him. You took his wife. And uh, I would have given you anything. You didn't need to rob that man of his prize and the most precious thing to him. And, and David felt the bitterness of, of God's judgment on his life. He went out and, and wept bitterly. And we've all experienced that. That's the bitterness of God putting his finger on issues in our life that will destroy us if, if not uh, tended to. And then there is the judgment that God meets out to others around us that that we love. And it's this perhaps that John has most in mind because it's his concern as he views the world scene and he sees the terrible uh, indignities that will be visited upon God's people during this, this last hour. He is, he's grieved. Now this, you see, is, is a truth that is taught throughout Scripture that we have to reckon with. The Christian life is not all sweetness and light. It is bitter sweetness. Because we live in this world. And the flesh, our own humanity, is very much a part of us. And God may have to judge us in order to deal with the enemy of our own souls. And that makes life hard. It's tough. It's difficult. And sometimes when we're undergoing this judgment, we think God doesn't love me anymore. He's forgotten me. He's abandoned me. But He hasn't. It's all part of His program to bring about salvation. Again, as Paul puts it, everything works together for good or to produce the good thing that God is, is after in our lives to those who love Him. Now this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's table.
And this is a sweet experience. It's a time when we reflect upon the cross and what that means to us in terms of our own guilt and shame, the forgiveness of sin, and the provision of His, of his life to be, to be our strength and all that, that we need. But there's also a bitterness about this table because the cross not only represents the place upon which the Lord Jesus died, it also represents the place upon which we die. Because the cross speaks to us as well. It speaks of a death to our self-centeredness and our tendency to depend upon ourselves and act out of our own resources. So as we approach this table, let's use this as an opportunity to judge ourselves, to go through that hard task of looking at ourselves honestly and seeing where we need to submit to the Lordship of Christ. We want to give you that opportunity. And so as the men come forward to distribute the elements and as we prepare to share this table together, will you open your heart to the Lord? Let Him see what's there. Ask Him to put His finger on those things in your life and, and I and in my life that indicate a measure of, of resistance and rebellion to His will for us. Will you do that now?